You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 10. Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, as, as we continue here now in part 2 of talking about a healthy church membership. Now, let me ask you this. Who is it, or, or who is the person that, that you would think of, or if you were asked this question of who has had the most influence on you, what name would come to mind? What person would you say is the answer to that question? And why is that person the answer to that question? I suspect that whoever has had the most influence on you has been someone who has taught you, someone who's instructed you, someone who has has helped you grow, but not only helped you grow in their instructions to you, in their words to you, but in the life they lived before you as well. That the person who has had influence on your life is someone that you may say, practice what they preached. And they're an, an example for you to follow in word and in deed. As we continue to look at chapter 2 here in Titus, we continue to see the call to be an example, to be someone that others can follow. And by following your example, they would become more like Christ. Again, last week as we began chapter 2, we saw Paul turn his attention from what qualified leaders in the church are to be, and also, too, as he addressed the rise of unqualified leaders, unqualified teachers in the church, and so we saw what they looked like. As we came to chapter 2, Paul then turned his attention to what the church at large is to look like, what the congregation is to look like. And we saw then, as Paul does this, he focuses on how Titus was to teach, that he was to teach what was in line with sound doctrine, which then is the behavior that should be seen within the church, the behavior that is a product of sound doctrine. So we see Paul addresses how Titus was to instruct first the older men, and then how he was to instruct the older women, and then in instructing the older women, how the older women then were to train the younger women. Now today we continue in this idea, as Paul then turns his attention to younger men, as we come to verse 6 here, and how they are to be. And then verses 7 to 8, we see the example that Titus was to set. And then finally, as we look at verses 9 through 10, we see how those who were slaves in the church were to be. Again, as Titus was to teach what was in line with sound doctrine, and we discuss how sound doctrine produces sound living, next week we'll see that the reason Paul gives for these instructions on behavior within the church is, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. 
that we don't want to lose sight of the fact that as Paul is talking about behavior within the church, this behavior, again, is produced by sound doctrine, and the reason Paul is instructing on such behavior is because of the gospel. That in that sound doctrine, in the truth of the gospel, in the truth of God's grace appearing in the coming of Jesus Christ, there's a difference in our lives. And so we all need to recognize that no matter how long we have been Christians, no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, we need the gospel. We need the truth of salvation. If we try to pursue these behaviors apart from the gospel, at best, we'll fall into legalism. That we'll be striving in our own strength, depending on our own behaviors, motivated by making ourselves right and patting ourselves on the back to say, hey, what a, what a good Christian I am. Look what I've been. And therefore, stand on our own righteousness, which Scripture makes very clear, especially with those motives, is nothing more than filthy rags. That's at best. At worst, we'll fail to live out these behaviors altogether. We will not rely on God's grace. We will not live with the motive that we do not live to earn anything from God, but we live because Jesus has already earned it all. And we will fail to live out what the scriptures call us to. We will fail to live out this life in God's grace. Because God's grace brings about a new life. A new living. A living that is rooted in Christ's atonement. And rooted in the great expectation of Christ's return. So, we want to remember this as we continue to go through the behavior that Paul says should be in the church. So with that said, let's look at our text here for this morning. Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So as we come to verse 6 here, we see this word, likewise. And it refers back to Paul's instructions for Titus to exhort the older men and the older women and what the older women were to be taught so that they can train the younger women. So just as Titus was to exhort those other groups in the same way, likewise, Titus was to exhort the younger men. And the younger men are certainly a group that needs to be addressed. The younger men are a group, not just in Paul's day, that needs to be addressed, but in our day. And really, that's, that's nothing new for us. The 19th century preacher, John Charles Ryle, he said this about young men in his book, 
Thoughts for Young Men. Now, my understanding about this book, Thoughts for Young Men, is that it's really just a, a smaller uh, piece of a larger work. But what he says here is, is, I think, still true. He says, There are few young men anywhere who seem to think on eternal things. I speak without respects of person. I say it of all. And he goes through. He's not talking about those who are rich or poor or where they live and where they don't live. No, he means everybody. He says, I tremble to observe how few young men are led by the Spirit, how few are in narrow, the narrow way which leads to life, how few are setting their affections upon things above, how few are taking up the cross and following Christ. I say it with all sorrow, but I believe as in God's sight, I am saying nothing more than the truth. Young men, you form a large and most important class. And in what condition are your mortal souls? And then Ryle goes on uh, to talk about those whom you can ask. Ask the ministers, ask the parents. Who are the ones in the church and who are the ones in the family that are most difficult to reach and cause the most heartache? He says, you know what the answer will be? the young men. And then Ryle goes on to say, let us ask the judges and police officers and know what they will reply. Who goes to the nightclubs and bars the most? Who makes up street gangs? Who are most often arrested for drunkenness, disturbing the peace, fighting, stealing, assaults, and the like? Who fills the jails and penitentiaries and detention homes? Who is the class which requires the most incessant watching and looking after? Depend on it. They will at once point to the same group. They will say, the young men. And again, what J.C. Ryle wrote in this book over a hundred years ago is still just as true and just as valuable today. And so fathers, if you have teenagers, or you have sons that will be teenagers, or if you have sons that are young adults, I would encourage you to, to get this book. Again, it's, it's, if I remember right, it's under 100 pages. It's not hard to read. Get this book and read it, and then read it with your teen or your young adult, and go through it with them. It's a, it's a great book. So again, we, we see the need, even in our own day, to address the young men. And as we see, Paul gives instructions to Titus to address the young men. He tells them, he tells Titus to address them with this one instruction. And as we've seen what he is told to instruct the older men and the older women, we may say, wait, he just got one instruction for the younger men? That's pretty short. But as we look at this, we see how encompassing this one instruction is. So much so that it's the same thing that he is told for everyone else that they are to have. How they are to live. Now, uh, just a quick note on this too. If we see here in verse 7 in the English Standard Version, verse 7 says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good. Uh, some commentaries argue uh, what is reflected in such translation as the the Christian Standard Bible, or Robert and William Mounts' interlinear translation, that what it says here in the ESV as, in all respects, that that should really go with verse 6. 
that the young men are to practice self-control in all respects, in every way. Now, there is an argument for it to go with verse 7, as the English Standard Version has it, although it would, in Greek, start the sentence there in verse 7. But I, I think that it's, it's true and right that this should really go with verse 6. And so, again, we see this as an all-encompassing command. That in everything the young men do, they are to be self-controlled, or, or as we've already looked at this word before, it can also be translated as to be sensible. They must learn to reason and be discerning. They should saturate their lives in the scriptures. And so in the power of the Holy Spirit, experiencing the transformation of their minds, and so think clearly on questions, think clearly on doubts, think clearly through temptation. Not being led or not reasoning from their emotions, but instead being level-headed, being sensible. Choosing what is right, even over and despite your desires. Which is why this word can sometimes be translated as self-control. It certainly is what we are all called to. And again, Paul has called each group to this. We've, we've noted that before. True Christianity, we should recognize, is where we follow Christ by denying ourselves and taking up our cross, following Jesus to the death of ourselves, to live by faith in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. So discerning truth, pursuing holiness, according to the truth of God's word, is what our lives should look like. Even if that means laying aside our traditions and man-made assumptions and presuppositions. And so let us model sensibility self-control for those who are younger than us, for those who are not as far along in their walk with Christ. Let us be active in discipling others, which we are all called to do, which we talked about that last week as well. We're all called to be an example for others to follow, just as Paul called Titus to be as he urged him to instruct the young men. And so young men, and really, uh, the young men are to be addressed and told that they are to be sensible because really all men are to be sensible, just as all women are to be sensible. Again, we've already seen that in what Paul has said. So really, the question is for all of us. How are we doing? How are you doing at being sensible? Reasoning and discerning and being level-headed starts in the mind. Starts with being sensible. And so thinking through, is there an area where you're failing at sin? Are you led by your emotions and your desires? To not be takes discipline. And first of all, discipline of your mind. You can't allow your mind to wander to all kinds of things, like lust and worry and assumptions, and just assume that you can walk away unscathed and without falling into sin. 
We need to control and discipline our minds. You must be disciplined in your thinking. And let's, let's think about it. What does Paul call believers to? Not to continue in the same passions and lusts as they did before they were saved, right? And not to continue being like the unbelieving world around us. That's not what Paul calls the believer to, right? What does he call us to? Well, we see in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The battle for holiness is in many ways a battle for your mind. Our minds must be renewed in the power of the Holy Spirit, submitting to Him as He applies our intake of God's Word. And so that implies we need to be taking in God's Word. As we're disciplined in thinking through the truths of God's Word, as we apply that and live it out, we can discern and recognize God's will. And that God's will, what He desires for us as opposed to what we desire, is good and acceptable and perfect. Also, too, we read in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you have been saved, if you are united with Christ by faith, so that his work, his perfect life, his sin-paying death is yours by faith, if you are saved, then what logically follows is your renewing, is your changing, is your being transformed. And Paul told the Colossians that being united with Christ now, they had to have new aims. That they were to now be seeking things above where Christ is seated. They should be seeking heavenly things, things that are pleasing to God. And they had to have new thinking as well. Setting their minds on things that are above, not on the things on the earth. Because the follower of Christ must have new aims and new thinking in living the new and resurrected life. And just two verses after this, Paul says this in verses three or 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So again, if you are saved, if Christ has saved you, If Christ has suffered the wrath that you deserved in your place so that not one drop of it ever has to fall to you, that you will not face God's wrath. If that's true, why would you continue to live as if you are one that would face God's wrath? Unless you are one who will face God's wrath. No, but if you have been saved, if you are in Christ by faith, then we are no longer who we used to be. And you've heard me reference before the quote by Steve Nichols when it says, Paul's message in the New Testament is summed up in this, 
that you are no longer who you used to be, so stop living like it. That's the call to us. We're no longer dead in our sins. If we are in Christ, we've been made alive with Christ. So stop living like you're still dead in your sins. Live the life that Christ has purchased for you. Again, this takes being renewed in your mind by knowing and submitting to God's word. This takes disciplining our minds to be able to discern God's will. It takes being sensible. That's what Paul is calling to here. So be in God's word. Know God's word. Dwell on God's word. And in prayer and meditation on God's word, depend on the Holy Spirit to empower you to live out God's word. To live in response to who you are now because of what Christ has done. Because of the great salvation that God has provided, raising you with Christ. And so, Titus had to encourage the young men in this way. And as we've seen, we're all to be encouraged in this. And as Titus is to encourage this, Titus is also to live this out. And so as we come to verse 7, we see what Paul says. He says, show yourself to be a model of good works. Titus Titus was to be a model. He's to be an example. He's to be an example for the young men, and, and probably this could even be referring to being an example for every group that Paul has mentioned. You know, it's like what we talked about when we went over the qualifications for elders. And we said those qualifications are not just for pastors alone, but the reason those qualifications are for elders is because pastors are to be an example for the rest of the church to follow. And so likewise, as Titus is to instruct these groups, he's to be an example to them as well. He's to be an example to them as opposed to what the false teachers were. False teachers who professed to know God, but denied him by their works, by the outliving of their lives. Those who were detestable and disobedient, unfit for any good work, and said Titus was to be an example of good works. The young men there on the island of Crete, they obviously had a lot of bad examples in those false teachers. But they needed a good one. And even today, we can recognize that we are no, in no way short of bad examples around us. Whether it's in sports figures or music artists or actors, uh, politicians, friends and family, whatever it is, there is a plethora of bad examples. But who will step up to be a good example? Who's going to demonstrate a life that is sold out to Christ Who's going to prove that you truly know God by your good works, by what you do? Who here is one who is an example to follow, of one whose life is being transformed, of one who is being renewed in their minds? Who is an example of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control in everything they do? with the motive of not someone coming along and patting you on the back saying, hey, what a great Christian you are, but with the motive of glorifying God with your life, 
which is the only pure motive there is. There's not one of us who does not continually need to grow in this. But are we growing? Are we demonstrating a heart growing in our desire to please God in all that we do? That we might be an example to those who are younger. That we might be an example to someone who's a new convert. That we might be an example to one who's not as far along in their walk with Christ. Again, as we mentioned last week, we are all responsible to be discipling others. We're all responsible to be speaking into someone else's life and training them in the ways of the Lord. And therefore, in that, also living our lives out before them as an example for them to follow. For Titus, Paul says here, part of showing himself to be an example of good works was in his teaching. His teaching that would have the quality of soundness or integrity. In other words, his teaching was not to be corrupt like the false teachers were. The false teachers who taught for shameful gain. They had impure motives that drove their impure teaching. Titus was to be an example of holding to the integrity of God's word in his teaching. Again, when our motives are anything but the glory of God, Uh, When our motives is is for what others will say about us, or how others will see us, or think of us, or that it's about what we can gain, then many things will creep into our our teaching and our reading of Scripture and corrupt it. But the pure word must be what's taught, adding nothing to it. And not only was the content of what Titus was to preach to be with integrity— But it was also to be taught with dignity, or could also be translated as with seriousness. For the word translated here, again, as as dignity, can be translated as seriousness. And uh, the way the Greek lexicon uh, defines this, it says, as a matter, a manner of mode of behavior that indicates one is above what is ordinary, and therefore worthy of special respect. So in Titus teaching God's word, his teaching was to show a handling of God's word that was above what is ordinary and therefore worthy of special respect. And you know, that takes what's called caring about authorial intent as opposed to what is ordinary, how people, especially in our day, often read the scriptures by asking what do I personally think or feel that it's saying to me? How is it speaking to me? Well, that's really the wrong question. Uh, There's a sense with, well, who cares of how you feel it's speaking to you? (laughs) That's not what we're trying to get from the scriptures. The question should be, what did the author intend to say? And then once we know the author's intent, then we apply that to our lives. Now, it's kind of like what uh, Ben Shapiro famously says, and that he even titled one of his books, Facts Don't Care About Your Feelings. And I know that sounds kind of harsh, but nonetheless, it's true. We need to get to the facts of what the author intended, not our subjective interpretation and understanding. It was the author that as he was writing what he intended to write was the one who was writing what God breathed out. 
It's the author that was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what matters is what the author intended. Now, we need to handle God's word with integrity and soundness, with dignity and seriousness. We have to care what was the author's intent. Again, this means knowing the context. I mean, because what, what drives meaning? Context, 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 right? You know, and there's a lot of really good, helpful things out there. Uh, helpful study Bibles, uh, like the MacArthur Study Bible or the ESV Study Bible and the others. They're, they're very helpful with getting the historical and grammatical context. And there's other resources, free resources, that are good on the internet. Bible Hub, Blue Letter Bible, uh, there's others that are helpful to help you study God's Word and understand what's being said. And, you know, there's other resources you can look into uh, for however deep you want to go, and I'd be glad to help you with that. There's, there's resources in my office that you can borrow as long as I don't need it at the moment. <laughs> uh, but uh, they're there to be at your disposal as well. Uh, so come see me uh, if you're interested in digging more into that. But Titus, again, he, he was to handle God's Word appropriately, rightly. And you say, well, Scott, why are you applying this to all of us? Because, I mean, Paul is saying this to Titus. This is what Titus was to do. Right. And you say, well, yeah, but Titus, he's functioning as, in a pastoral role as he's a, a delegate of the Apostle Paul there on the island of Crete. So, so why does this apply to us? Because why is Paul telling this to Titus? This is part of Titus being an example for everyone else. That everyone else is to handle God's word with integrity and dignity. This is part of him being an example, being a model. And so the whole church is to handle the scriptures this way. We are to care about the purity of God's word and handle it with integrity. And then we see, too, not only was Titus to be an example in his teaching, but he was also to be an example in everything he said in all of his speech that we see in verse 8. He's to be an example of sound speech that cannot be condemned and cannot be blamed or or, was irreproachable. So what came out of his mouth in his teaching, whatever else he said in all of his conversations, he was to be an example to others. Can can that be said of us in all of our speech, in everything we say, (laughs) that we're an example to others? We see here the reason, too, that's given of of why Titus was to be such an example in all that he said and all that he did. The reason is given is that so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Uh, The goal here is that even if someone did make an accusation, that that accusation would be found to be baseless. So that there would be no evidence for people to speak against Christians. And notice, uh, Paul uses a first-person plural, having nothing evil to say about us. About all of us. That no one could say by our conduct, by our speech, by our teaching, that we don't really believe what we claim to believe. That no one could look at Christianity because of our lives and say, it's just like every other religion. It has no power to change the hypocrite. Because that's what happens. 
When someone falls, when someone falls into sin who proclaims Christ and says, I'm a Christian, I'm a churchgoer, this is who I am. And what does society do? When they see that, they paint everyone who claims the name of Christ with the same brush. You know, I, I cringe whenever I see in the news about a, a pastor or a youth leader that's arrested because of some inappropriate relationship or behavior. Because you know that, again, we're, we're all going to be painted with that same brush. This is what Christianity is. This is what they're about. And so then it becomes the excuse for the unbeliever to remain in his unbelief. Let that not happen here, among us at North Valley. Not because we and ourselves are, are beyond any sin, but because knowing our natural propensities and our weaknesses, that if we ourselves have not fallen into any sin, it's only because of the grace of God. And so let us, therefore, seek to remain close to our Lord and depend upon Him for everything. Let us strive to train ourselves in holiness, being sensible, being disciplined in our thinking. Again, Titus was to be an example for others because this is what everyone was to be. What our speech, what our living, what all of that, and all that we say and do among us here at North Valley be blameless so that any opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And then before Paul closed this idea that he's been continuing here of the behavior within the church, he, he addresses one last group. And so as we look at verses 9 through 10, we see that he addresses the slaves that were members in the church. And so there's an obvious difference here uh, with why this is a, a group that's designated as opposed to every other group that Paul has mentioned so far. Uh, this specific group is called out not based on their age like the other groups, but based on their place in society. And what we see here in the English Standard Version, also too in the New American Standard Bible or the New King James Version, uh, and many other translations have it this way, it says that they are bond servants. But it's right, and I think more clear of a translation that we see in the Legacy Standard Bible, the Christian Standard Bible, the Net Bible, when it says Paul is referring to slaves. And that's exactly what Paul is referring to. Slaves, those who are owned by someone else. Now much of the labor in the Roman Empire was dependent on slavery. And as Paul addresses these slaves that were part of the church, he did not address the, moral, the morality of the practice. He, he was just acknowledging the reality of the practice. And, and, you know, there were also different kinds and, and different aspects of slavery there in the Roman Empire. There were those who were treated immorally. Those who were treated uh, and were abused. Those who would even be killed just for a minor slip-up or for any little thing of how they didn't please their master. And there were many, however, uh, that were treated more like an employee. Some even were entrusted with authority within the household, even running the family practice. And it should be noted, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul tells slaves that they should gain their freedom if they wanted to, and the opportunity presented itself. 
But there were some that remained slaves because it was better, a better life than trying to find work and, and live within such a hard society and such a difficult economic system. And some loved their masters and desired to stay with them. And so there were situations in the church as we look throughout the New Testament where there were slaves who came to Christ and were saved and so were members within the church and had masters that were believers. But like our text here and other texts, it seems to indicate that these were slaves within the church whose masters were not believers. And so as Paul addresses this specific group of people within the church, his address to them has an evangelistic tone to it. And I think we need to recognize that. What is it that Paul is calling these slaves to? And why? These slaves who didn't own themselves, they were owned by someone else. These slaves who often had it very hard. And it might surprise us what Paul says to them. And so let's look at that. What does Paul say to uh, the slaves there in the church? He says that they're to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Submit to them. Now, we know that our ultimate submission is always to the Lord Jesus Christ, above all else. But Paul is saying, submit to your own masters in everything. What else are they to do? They're to be well-pleasing. They're to give of themselves into their work. They're to be diligent in their work. They're not to be argumentative. They're not to talk back. Or fight with their master. And they're not to be pilfering. They're not to be stealing. You know, sometimes slaves, they were in such a position that it would be really easy for them to have sticky fingers. To just kind of whoop and take from here and there without their master ever knowing. Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't be argumentative. Don't be pilfering. Instead, what they were to be, as Paul says, is to show all good faith. They were to be loyal slaves faithful in everything they did. They're to be in, have integrity in what they did. And why? You'd think, Paul is saying, get out of that situation you're in. Run away if you can. But what would that serve? That may get them their freedom, maybe. Could end their life, too. But even if it got them their freedom, that freedom would still only be a temporary thing, a freedom that is only for this life. Paul didn't want the slaves thinking just about this life. He wanted them to be thinking about eternal things. And so in everything Paul directs the slaves here is for what has eternal value. And so the reason is that we see so that in everything they may adorn the doctrines of God our Savior. Uh, the word adorn here is where we get our English word cosmetics. And originally it had to do with how we ordered things so it would be symmetrical, so it would look good. That in how the slaves lived as slaves, they would adorn the doctrines of God our Savior. See, because again, what was more important? Their freedom, which was only for this life and so is temporary? Or the eternal salvation of their masters? that they would have an opportunity to share with their masters about Jesus Christ. 
that because how they serve their masters, no matter how difficult and how abusive their master may be, that their master would know that there's something different about them. Hey, you, you go to that gathering of those people of the way or those Christians. You meet with them, and, and you're not like my other slaves. You're not, you're not always trying to run away. You're not stealing from me. You're not giving me a hard time and fighting with me. You're not, you're not like them. What is it that's different about you? And so how they live can adorn the doctrines of God our Savior. You know, I've heard people's testimonies about how they first heard the gospel. It's because there was people they knew that stuck out like a sore thumb from everyone else they knew. Because they didn't use the language that other people use. They didn't tell the dirty jokes that other people use. They, 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 were, uh, they had integrity in their job, unlike the other people they worked with. And so when they asked them, what's different about you? Why are you like this? That gave that person the opportunity to say, Jesus is what's different. It's not because of anything of me. If there's anything good of me, it's not of me. It's of Jesus. It's what he has done. That I was a wretched sinner. I had broken God's law. I had lived for myself even though God made me for him. I spit in the face of my creator and earned his wrath. But God is so gracious and so kind to me that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. His son came and willingly lived the perfect life that I could never live. And then he went to the cross where Jesus took on my sin, that God treated Jesus as if he lived my life, and that Jesus paid for the sins that I committed in my place. He died for me, and he rose again, and he's alive today. And so I can know the righteousness of Jesus credited to me that now God would treat me as if I lived Jesus's life, that I've been forgiven, and not only forgiven, but I've given, been given the righteousness of Jesus that God sees me as holy before him, even though I'm, I'm a wretched sinner. I could see how much God loved me. How could I not live in loving him in return? Look what he's done for me. And that's exactly what Paul is calling these slaves to. Calling them to what eternally matters. Despite their circumstances, despite their situation. Again, Paul wasn't saying, listen, if you had the opportunity to go get your freedom, go for it. If that's what you want, do it. If you can better yourself, that's fine. But if you can't, can you trust God in your circumstances? Can you trust in God's sovereignty where you are, that he has a plan to use you where you are for his honor and his glory? You know, the same is true for us. Whatever our circumstances might be, if you can better yourself, great. If you can make more money, if you can get another job, if you can, whatever it is, if you have that opportunity, fine. That's, that's fantastic. Go do that. But if you can't, can you trust God with where you're at? Whatever your circumstances may be, however difficult they may be, can you trust that God has sovereignly placed you where you are for his good purposes to use you to adorn the doctrines of himself, to endure, uh, adorn how, how great he is, to show uh, the marvelous works that he has done in your life through Jesus Christ? Can you trust where God has you in the circumstances that you are in so that you would live to glorify him right where you're at? I say this and I almost feel a little hypocritical because I am, because this is something I, I, I can struggle with. And, and I need to learn day by day that I, I need to trust God with, with, with all of my circumstances, that, that he's going to use wherever he has me for his purposes. I need to learn that more. And, and so... If you can help me with that, I'd, I'd appreciate it and be praying about that. But that's what we all need to do. 
Wherever God has us, he has us there for a reason, that we may glorify him for who he is and what he has done. And listen, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ, that we would be sensible, that we would have lives that are saturated in his word, that we know his will and we, we discipline ourselves uh, not to go where our flesh wants us to go. And so, yes, there's that, that constant battle. But we say no to our flesh as we discipline our thoughts and we seek to live for his honor and his glory in all that we do and all that we say, that we seek to handle God's word with integrity and seriousness. And we seek to live it out and to live as examples for others. That, that we're seeking to grow and be more like Christ, and as we're an example to others, uh, for them to follow, they'll grow to be more like Christ. And that no matter where we're at or what's going on in our lives, whatever our circumstances, we trust God and seek to honor Him through that. This is what the Christian life looks like. This is what it looks like to be in the church. This is what God calls us to, that we would glorify our great God and King, He who has done so much for us, He who is worthy of our lives being lived for Him. So let us do that. Let us be sensible. Let us be examples. And let us live for God right where we're at in the circumstances that we're in. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.